Hello and welcome to Extrapolator. Today is part two of The Source of Meaning, which continues on from last week's episode. And if you haven't heard the previous episode, I really recommend going back to listen to that first, since this episode won't make as much sense in isolation. By and large, the episodes in this series could be treated as standalone, but this episode and the last on The Source of Meaning are very much a two-parter. And in general, it does make most sense to listen to the episodes in chronological order. For those of you who've been doing this so far, I hope you've noticed that each episode builds on the last, linking back to previous foundations and signposting future avenues. This is all part of my effort to lay out my philosophical framework, and I hope that it's resolving into an ordered and coherent map. This two-parter on the source of meaning is my ambitious attempt to cover the self, free will, intentionality, the flow of time, and the meaning of life and to provide a naturalistic update to traditional philosophical debates. One that appeals to scientific descriptions, and not to anything supernatural or non-physical. Not to anything fishy or spooky. What unites these topics is an apparent mismatch between the first-person experience of human life and the third-person descriptions of empirical science. So the challenge involves accounting for why we have these experiences, without diverting from what is licensed by our best science. It was my view last week that self and free will can be accounted for on the basis of levels of description. They are both emergent phenomena which do not exist at the level of fundamental particles, but which do exist at higher levels of reality, when a human being is considered in its entirety as a complex system. This week, I want to introduce the idea of frames of reference. This will be my treatment for the topics of time, concepts, and ultimately, meaning. Let's talk about the philosophy of time, since I think it gives the best introduction to this idea of frames of reference. Here I want to introduce a new paper by the wonderful Jinan Ismail, titled Passage, Flow, and the logic of temporal perspectives. The experience of the flow of time raises one of our familiar puzzles, a mismatch between first-person experience and third-person science. We, as human beings, experience time as something flowing, moving from past to future, sweeping us along at a steady rate. Whereas, physics describes time as something fixed, just like spatial dimensions. There is no evidence of anything flowing in the impartial and disinterested descriptions of physics. Ismail addresses this apparent dualism in terms of reference frames. The description of time as static is simply the frame-independent view, whereas the experience of flowing time is the frame-dependent view, which is only available to an agent under certain conditions. The experience of time as flowing cannot be found anywhere out there, since it is not a feature of objective reality, and it's not attributable to any dimension of the universe. Rather, it is an experience that arises only within a certain frame of reference, the frame of a particular agent, like a human being, who is embedded in time, with retrospective memory and prospective planning. 
Ismail makes the case that any agent can achieve this experience of flow if they are embedded under the right conditions. She considers a thought experiment involving an AI system called IGUS. IGUS has a number of important faculties which align with human faculties. IGUS experiences the world in a series of snapshots of moments which are combined as if run through a film projector. And IGUS has several other processes, like an asymmetry of knowledge about the past but not the future. IGUS, like humans, knows what has happened but not what will happen. An asymmetry of choosing actions in the future but not the past. Past actions are locked and can't be changed. Future actions are open and not yet selected. A cycle of memory, representation of the past and autobiographical representations. A cycle of prospection, planning and choosing future actions. These processes are purely objective in that they can be described in naturalistic language as biological processes or silicone-based processes. And yet, they give rise to the subjective experience of being an embedded agent. We humans experience time as flowing because of these faculties and processes. Within the frame of any embedded agent, human or igus, time appears to flow. Our subjectivity is the result of our unique frame, our numerical differences from other humans and other organisms, and our unique embedded perspective within time our relationship to past knowledge versus future knowledge, our relationship to past actions versus future actions, and our memory of the past and planning for the future. What follows from Ismail's thought experiment is that physics allows certain events and processes to be inherently subjective and frame-dependent. Objective physical processes and faculties can give rise to different subjective perspectives, different frames of reference, Certain processes have an inherently subjective component and are only accessible from a particular frame of reference. This can be called an asymmetry of access. Our thoughts are necessarily private. They are internal and mental and not out there in the world. And so too, the flow of time is something that is, in a way, private. It arises only within the frame of certain agents. Humans and perhaps other animals and perhaps future AI, only if they have the right faculties to make them embedded in time. The flow of time is not a feature of objective reality, rather it's a feature of subjective experience, particular to a certain frame of reference. And crucially, this frame-dependent description of flowing time is no less correct or real than the frame-independent description of static time as given by modern physics. Flowing time and static time are two different realities from two different frames of reference. We are now going to use this analysis of frames of reference as a link from the topic of time to the topics of concepts and meaning. In order to discuss concepts, we need to discuss the notion of intentionality. Intentionality is a philosophical term with a technical meaning. It does not refer to purposeful intentions, which is easy to assume, and some philosophers still fall for this confusion. Instead, intentionality describes the fact that internal mental states are sometimes about or represent external entities or states of affairs. 
It is commonplace for our thoughts to have intentional objects. It is very normal for us to have thoughts about things. Our thoughts can be about physical objects, like that tree, or about abstract concepts, democracy, or even imaginary entities, unicorns. Intentionality refers to this aboutness, the fact that our thoughts have contents and refer to things. The aboutness of our thoughts poses a challenge for naturalistic philosophy. How can this mechanism be accounted for in physicalistic language? What is the connection between the internal mental thought and the external physical object it describes, like a tree? And even more abstractly, what is the connection between a thought and a democracy? Or a thought and a unicorn? As always, this poses a practical engineering challenge for AI. In order to build AI systems with representational states like ours, we have to understand how such states are physically possible. And it also poses a challenge for understanding reality. Where do these concepts reside? Is the concept of a tree objective, as in out there in the world, or subjective, constructed by the human or the artificial system? The terminology here is a bit tricky, so I'll quickly recap. Intentional states, also called representational states, are thoughts which are about other entities. There is an aboutness to these states, since they represent other objects, and have these objects as their intentional content. Authors mix these terms, intentional, representational, aboutness, when they're discussing the topic of intentionality. It is sometimes called semantics or semantic meaning, since the problems of naturalizing intentionality and naturalizing semantics are closely related. As a whole, this discussion of intentionality is about how we conceptualize the world. In our interactions with the world, we develop and apply concepts of the entities we encounter, like horse, chair, flower, and so on. It is my view that we inductively infer these concepts or categories of things, assembling them by similarity and ontology. But other philosophers disagree. They argue that concepts exist objectively, out there in some perfect form, in a mind-independent realm. And this is a type of Platonism, since it echoes Plato's theory of forms. It will be a central part of my argument to show that concepts are subjective and not objective. However we acquire our concepts, whether through subjective inference or objective appearance, we certainly make heavy use of concepts in our interactions with the world. And this is a central part of Immanuel Kant's philosophy, that all perceptions are guided by categories of objects and entities. For Kant, we never see the raw or unfocused stimuli, like dark green lines or dark beams plucked out of context. Instead, we always perceive objects in terms of categories, as a chair, as a flower, as a friend. It is a difficult question to answer whether we can perceive any raw stimulus without applying some conception of what it is. But regardless, concepts certainly play a central role in how we perceive and interact with the world. It is my view that intentionality can be explained as a subjective, frame-dependent phenomenon. Concepts, or aboutness, arise from a system's subjective acts of conceptualizing, guided by its sensory motor system 
through interactions with the world. Concepts like tree or democracy are developed by trial and error and inductively inferred to fit the observations and memory and actions of an organism. And in this way, intentionality should be understood as an evolutionary adaptation. It is an adaptation which enables organisms to navigate the world. We need these concepts to process information and select actions and complete tasks. However, it is crucial to specify what the adaptation is. The adaptation is not the specific concept, as in what is encoded in intentional states, such as horse, chair, flower, and so on. Evolution could not have anticipated the invention of chairs and pre-programmed an innate concept for chair. Rather, the adaptation is the ability or capacity or propensity of an organism to represent objects. It is the ability to form concepts, the ability to conceptualize when navigating the world. This line of reasoning is based on the idea that intelligence is situated and embodied, an idea that I talked about in episode 4 on the history of AI. Intelligence evolved in relation to the environment, thus situated, and the physical body, thus embodied. And equally, our capacity to conceptualize and to have thoughts that are about entities in the world is for the purpose of navigating the world, using our specific sensory motor system. We should expect these concepts to be relative to the sensory motor system. This goes back to James Gibson's theory of affordances. Different physical objects present different opportunities for action, depending on the organism. And so those objects are not represented in the same way. A meadow teeming with flowers is represented differently by a bee than by a human, Bethany, who is sprinting to get to the ice cream van. Representations of the world always refer back to the representor. Size, distance, need, possibilities for action, like tasty antelope at 12 o'clock, or pollinate flowers, avoid giant shoes. It's time to introduce some empirical support for my claim that concepts are subjective and frame-dependent. One such study has been conducted by Ben Gertzel. Gertzel is a leading AI researcher, and if you like, you can hear him on the Joe Rogan podcast. In general, if you like a certain philosopher, I really recommend looking for podcast interviews. It's a really great way to do philosophy and to hear way more about their broader views and personal life than is covered in any paper. When I'm reading a book or paper, I like to pair it with podcast interviews with the author to get a better understanding of their mindset. Some excellent philosophers that I've mentioned so far are easy to find on podcasts. Pete Mandick, of course, Sam Harris, and one of my favourites, Janan Ismail, though I could only find one long-form interview. So, I really wish you'd do more. Just saying, Janan, if you're listening, maybe we can do one, one day. But anyway, back to Ben Gertzel. The study I want to talk about is titled towards a pragmatic understanding of the cognitive underpinnings of symbol grounding, and it's actually a chapter in an edited book. This experiment trained an AI system to learn and ground the concept near, as in, I am near the ball, near the man, etc. Near in the sense of proximity or closeness. And the system then applied the concept near in the sensory motor task of playing fetch. 
The AI system, called the Novamente AI Engine, used probabilistic evolutionary learning to carry out the experiment in a 3D simulated environment. And of course, it was essential for the system to be embodied, to have even a simulated body, since concepts relate to the body, the environment, and sensory motor tasks. This is particularly interesting when we consider how the system learned to play fetch. The 3D simulated environment allowed the system to have effective embodiment with multiple moving body parts and experience via multiple senses. The system was able to break the task into a number of sub-goals and to employ the newly acquired concept of nearness. First, it needed to move nearer to the ball and pick it up, then move nearer to the teacher and give the ball. In the most demanding version of the experiment, the system had to continually adjust its simulated body and could only see items along its line of sight, and the system was able to correctly learn a sequence for executing the task fetch. Gertzel and his team conclude that this was a successful application of symbol grounding, effectively linking the symbolic and the sensory motor domains of the system. In other words, the system made a link between the internal mental concepts, like near, and the external sensory motor world. And that was the puzzle of intentionality. How internal concepts can be about external entities. This study provides very interesting insights and implications. So here's the part where we extrapolate. This study shows, or at least suggests, that concepts are something intrinsically linked to the sensory motor system. For this AI engine, the meaning of the concept near was relevant to its specific experience of manipulating its body. The concept was employed in order to move nearer to the ball and then nearer to the teacher by reference to the agent's body. This also points to the importance of evolutionary history and learning. The system learned the concept near and used it to fulfill a concrete function to achieve a subjective goal. The result from Goetzel and his team supports the idea that a system infers, inductively or otherwise, certain categories and concepts through sensory motor interactions with the world and employs these concepts in future perception and action. Intentional acts and intentionality are explainable as evolutionary adaptations for navigating the world. And this points us towards one particularly stark conclusion, that intentional acts are inherently subjective and internal to the particular system. Intentionality is not some mind-independent phenomenon, explainable in terms of platonic forms or perfect ideas or some other regularities in the world. Concepts like horse and teacher and near do not reside out there in objective reality, sitting patiently for us to latch onto them through some platonic act of reaching into the platonic realm of ideas. We do not need to license such a spooky idea as mind-independent concepts. Rather, intentionality is necessarily mind-dependent. It arises only within a certain frame of reference, only within the frame of a particular system, through sensory motor interactions with the world, through acts of conceptualizing the world. To recap, we can answer some of our overarching questions. The source of the flow of time, question. Where does the experience of the flow of time reside? 
Answer, it exists subjectively within the frame of reference of a particular system. The source of concepts. Question, where do concepts reside? They exist subjectively within the frame of reference of a particular system. It might be easy to assume, dear listener, that these are mainstream ideas, but I think it's a rather novel way to view the debate around intentionality. The focus and method of drawing on empirical starting points in neuroscience or AI is especially cutting edge, and as always, I argue that it's incredibly important. I want to present opposing positions to give you a flavour of what's out there. One-sided philosophy is never particularly fun, since you don't get the feeling of being challenged by an opponent and having a real debate that needs a direction, or a puzzle that needs a solution. I want to avoid being overly one-sided in laying out my own picture, since very different pictures exist. David Wiggins presents one such different account of concepts. Wiggins labels his position conceptualist realism because he argues that concepts are objectively real, in the sense of existing out there in the mind-independent world. This raises the question, where? Or more precisely, fucking where? If concepts are independent of minds, then they must have some sort of non-physical or platonic existence. Some sort of, you guessed it, spooky existence. Wiggins does not believe that concepts are inductively inferred by minds. The concept horse is something universal, an essence, as he puts it. And this reverses the direction of causation. We don't infer horse on the basis of prior experience of horses. Rather, we recognise random horses in fields on the basis of a pre-existing concept horse. The concept horse precedes all observations of four-legged gallopy things. It is a perfect antecedent idea, not something cobbled together through trial and error by something as messy as empirical observations. I'm being somewhat uncharitable with Wiggins' position. It is poor philosophical etiquette to undersell your opponent, something known as attacking a straw man, since you don't frame the debate in a way that creates a real challenge or a fair fight. I do want to be sincere and present the best possible reading of Wiggins, so in a moment we'll switch over to the topic of meaning, the final topic for today, and I'll lay out Wiggins' most persuasive argument. But first we should consider one other possibility about the source of concepts. What if the concept horse did not have a non-physical existence? What if the concept horse was like the human self, an emergent entity that exists only at a certain level of description? Maybe the concept of horseness can emerge from the physical world. But, alas, this reasoning does not work. The empirical justification that we gave for self and free will is simply not available here, since the concept horse cannot be linked back to a property of a complex system with any impact on material reality. A red chair does not enjoy any material benefit from the emergent property of chairness, in the way that a dog does enjoy an adaptive benefit from representing a self, or from selecting its actions. And similarly, 
the emergent property of self and a human being cannot be an analogy for the emergence of an identity of chairness. The self of a human being is a property of the human being, whereas the identity of the chair is not a property of the chair. This description of chairness is applied by a human being in an act of individuation. It is a subjective conception belonging to the human, not an objective essence of the chair. So this recognises a clear distinction. The concept horse or the concept chair, these are not properties contained in the thing itself, not in the horse or the chair. Whereas self and free action are properties contained in the thing itself, in the human being, since they are properties of that complex system. And now is a good time to move on to the next part of the discussion, since this puzzle about concepts is closely linked to the topic of meaning. It is David Wiggins who licensed my temptation to talk about the meaning of life. In his essay, Truth, Invention and the Meaning of Life, he insists that the question is unphilosophical, which it is from an analytic perspective, but he then attempts to answer it seriously. Wiggins writes in opposition to Richard Taylor's inner-outer distinction, which holds that life is meaningless on the outer view and that meaning is visible only when experience is viewed from within. Taylor wants to argue that life is objectively meaningless, and, for the record, so do I. Wiggins wants to argue that life is not objectively meaningless, and this is reminiscent of John McDowell's argument that the natural world is not disenchanted, which I mentioned in the previous episode. So that's the debate about the source of meaning. Is life objectively meaningless? Is the natural world disenchanted? Or is there some objective source of meaning? Is there some way to save the enchantment of the natural world? Wiggins seeks an objective measure of meaning, and he draws an analogy between meaning and colour perception. When we see a red pillar box, this perception is both because it is red, objectively, and because it produces a certain perceptual experience, subjectively. Objective redness refers to a certain wavelength of electromagnetic radiation, which is a mind-independent property, whereas subjective redness refers to the experience of the human onlooker. As a matter of fact, this analogy about colour perception fits very well with the earlier example about the flow of time. There is both an objective, mind-independent correlate, you know, time as a static dimension, or a certain wavelength of light, and there is a subjective, frame-dependent experience, such as time is flowing, or the perception of redness. In both cases, there is a link between objective and subjective elements. So in the case of colour perception, as in seeing the red pillar box, Wiggins argues that the object and the psychological state are equal and reciprocal partners. And he then applies this analogy to meaning. He says that there's both the subjective aspect and the objective correlate. Perceiving colour or perceiving meaning is linked to an objective wavelength of light or an objective source of meaning. Therefore, reality is not objectively meaningless. And that is Wiggins' best case for re-enchanting the natural world. 
the analogy to colour perception might seem convincing. However, Wiggins fails to identify a crucial disanalogy between colour and meaning. Colour does have a mind-independent correlate, namely electromagnetic radiation, and we can verify this empirically. It fits into a naturalistic worldview. The electromagnetic spectrum is part of our most conventional theories to describe the physical world. Whereas, there is no analogous correlate for meaning. Well, Wiggins wants to argue that one exists, but this is not proven by mere analogy alone. The difference between colour and meaning is that the mind-independent correlate for colour is empirically verifiable, whereas this purported correlate of meaning is not. Yes, granted, subjects still refer to some objective properties of objects, like tall, spiky, explosive. We, of course, refer to objective entities when making value judgments or ascriptions of meaningfulness. Uh, This Christmas tree is my favourite because it is the tallest. Nuclear bombs are bad because they're explosive. But there's a glaring difference between the property tall and the property of electromagnetic wavelength. There is a necessary connection between the objective wavelength for red and the subjective perceptual experience of redness. The objective property of a certain wavelength necessarily produces the same subjective experience in, well, the majority of humans, not counting those with colour blindness or other anomalies. And when I say necessarily, I don't mean mandated by the a priori laws of mathematics, in case there are any logician trolls lurking. On one view, it is simply a contingent connection, but I'm simply trying to stress the intrinsic link between objective wavelengths of red and subjective perceptions of red, as has evolved in human nervous systems. By contrast, there is no necessary connection between properties like tall, spiky, explosive, and reliably consistent judgments of good, beautiful, or meaningful. And this analogy with colour perception fails because we cannot ascertain some empirical correlate. When it comes to colour, things can be both objectively red and subjectively red. When it comes to meaning, it appears that it is subjective only. So, reality is objectively meaningless. Wiggins' argument about meaning tries to save reality as being objectively meaningful, and nature as still enchanted, but the case ultimately fails. Like his argument about concepts, the argument about meaning appeals to Platonism. It attributes some non-physical, platonic existence to meaning and concepts, which exist, somehow, prior to any subjective act of the mind. And that's simply too spooky and fishy for our liking. It's not naturalistic. Aside from Wiggins, there are many arguments for mind-independent meaning, and some that expressly attempt to naturalise meaning, accounting for it in purely scientific terms, just as we're trying to do here. I'll give you a whistle-stop tour of the more famous ones, so you know what we're up against. Fred Dretzky argues that meaning can be mind-independent, in the form of natural information, or natural meaning. For example, there is a nomological or law-like relation between smoke and fire, therefore smoke naturally means fire. There can't be smoke unless there's a fire. 
This identifies meaning as existing objectively, out there in the world, and minds simply latch onto it, rather than constructing subjective links of their own accord. So the link between smoke and fire is not subjectively inferred by humans after enough experience. Rather, it already exists as a natural meaning, and we simply observe that. Dretzky's theory is certainly more naturalistic than Wiggins, since it does not appeal to any spooky Platonism. But, on my assessment, it still makes the mistake of locating intentionality or aboutness as some kind of mind-independent relation, based on law-like regularities out there in the world. And this ignores the subjective dimension of meaning constructed by organisms to navigate a sensory motor world. Ruth Millikan takes yet a different approach in her naturalistic theory of meaning. Millikan says that intentionality is related to proper function, and this proper function is just a biological fact of some entity's ability or design. For example, hearts have a proper function in that they're designed to or supposed to pump blood, and kidneys have a different function, and so on. She then links biological functions with mental functions. Success versus failure of biological function can be equated with truth versus falsity in language, since a false or ambiguous sentence is not able to perform its proper function. For Millikan, the function of a belief or intention is no more mysterious than the function of a heart, since each is an evolutionary adaptation with a practical purpose. Millikan's appeal to evolutionary history is on the right track, but she is wrong to completely equate physical functions with mental functions. When it comes to mental functions, there are more mechanisms at play. The fact that we have internal representations about external states of affairs requires more explanation than a heart merely pumping blood. So this is a flavour of the challenge we must address when it comes to meaning. Theories from Wiggins, Dretzky, Millikan that say that meaning is objective, that it is located or that it resides in a heart pumping blood or in a fire emitting smoke, or in some kind of non-physical platonic realm. So now we are challenged to justify how meaning is merely subjective, constructed on the part of each organism and different in different frames of reference. Carlotta Pavesi gives an account of practical meaning. She writes that the meaning of a representation is always relative to the abilities of the system in question. Pavesi focuses on motor commands, which are representations of a sort. A motor command is processed in order to carry out an action, and this first involves breaking down the action into subtasks. However, in order to avoid an infinite regress of subtasks into subtasks into subtasks forever, there must be a set of elementary tasks. Once the action has been broken down into these elementary parts, no further division is possible. These elementary tasks are the fundamental abilities or functions of a particular system. Things the system can do, possible motions, possible speeds, possible operations, and so on. Things that can be done depending on the legs, or wings, or brain, or silicon. And there is clearly no set of absolute elementary tasks that applies to all systems. Rather, these possible tasks are relative to each particular system, subject, or agent. Each system has its own particular abilities, 
and therefore the meaning of a motor command is different for each system. And here we can link back to the analogy with the flow of time. Just as the flow of time is a frame-dependent phenomenon, meaning is also a frame-dependent phenomenon. Of course, Pavese focuses on motor commands, which is only a narrow subset of processes, but I would argue that the reasoning can be extended to other perceptions and judgments. When a system constructs or represents the world, this is always by reference to the system's faculties and abilities, its body or brain or programming. If we accept Pavese's definition of practical meaning, it is clear that meaning is inherently subjective, relative to each system and different for each system. And moreover, there is an objective fact of the matter as to these differences. The subjective element arises on the basis of objective constraints, and it is perfectly in keeping with the objective descriptions of the system. So, the subjectivity of meaning, the fact that it is different for everyone, this is not inexplicably spiritual or spooky. Rather, it is exactly as we should expect it to be when we take into account the objective constraints of any system. It is perfectly intelligible when we are guided by naturalistic, scientific descriptions of the differences between bodies, between brains, and between systems. Of course each of these systems would construct meaning differently and subjectively. This idea is nicely summed up by Pete Mandick and Andy Clark. They write, Some features may be subjective, but whether they are subjective is itself an objective matter. That is the tricky interplay between subjective experience and objective reality. That is my conclusion about meaning for different organisms. Differences in sensory motor functions define inherent differences in the way that systems experience and interact with the world. And perhaps we have also answered that unphilosophical question about the meaning of life. Since meaning is relative to each system, meaning does not exist out there in the world. And that is to say that reality is inherently meaningless. That seems to be as neat a candidate as any for an outlook on the meaning of life, if you'll permit my very tentative extrapolation. Of course, there are fuzzy leaps in the reasoning, since the meaning of a motor command or the semantic meaning of a sentence are not quite the same as the meaningfulness or significance or value of life. But I did give the disclaimer that this would be wilder extrapolation. On the whole, I hope that my account of frames of reference has been illuminating. Considering such frame-dependent phenomena as the flow of time, conceptualizing the world, and constructing meaning. As always, it is essential to recognize the source or the location of the phenomenon. In what way does it exist? Where does it reside? When it comes to the source of meaning, I hope I've given a fun and plausible take on the meaning of life. Well, you may not think it's fun to conclude that reality is inherently meaningless, but then again, this may be a much better alternative than prescribed meaning from some objective standard or supernatural code. I'll come back to this idea in two episodes' time. For now, I'll simply say, where meaning does reside is within the frame of a particular system. That is the source of meaning. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and tell a friend. And please follow us on Instagram at extrapolatorpod. I'm enthusiastic for the podcast to grow, and I hope to book some exciting guests for interviews in future episodes. The artwork for Extrapolator was designed by Hugh Allen, and the rest of the production was done by me, writing, editing, and creating the music. If you like the music, you can find it on Spotify under the title Entry Music for a Podcast. As always, you can find a reading list for this episode on my blog at jeffallenwriting.wordpress.com. I list all of the books and papers that I've mentioned throughout each of the episodes, and you may feel the desire to dive deeper into one of these sources. And also, philosophy podcasts and interviews are a great way to hear more from these authors. Although, FYI, some of them died before podcasts were around. Next week I'll be talking about religion, how we can use naturalistic philosophy to evaluate religious beliefs. Can we say that God exists? Where does he reside? Well, until next time.